A bipartisan group of senior senators is pushing for a major overhaul of the government's systems for classifying information. The new legislation aims to curtail what they say is an overclassification problem and make records easier to declassify. The bill includes a new 25-year time limit on classification, and agencies who classify too many records could face financial penalties. We get details from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Senators Mark Warner, John Cornyn, Ron Wyden, and Jerry Moran introduced two separate pieces of legislation yesterday that they say would make long overdue changes to the classification system. It's meant to clamp down on overclassification, create more centralized governance over federal agencies' classification procedures, and also shore up agencies' insider threat programs. Warner is chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. We've got a Byzantine, bizarre, bureaucratic system that has not kept up with the times, has not moved at all to digitalization. So consequently, we continue to vastly overclassify huge amounts of information, while at the same time not fully protecting our nation's most important secrets. We, matter of fact, so overclassify that our military has said that that level of overclassification leads to a hindrance of working smoothly with our allies around the world. And because we've got so many records that are viewed as classified, with that much overclassification, that has also led to a simultaneous effort to actually require more people to get clearances. Truth is, we're now over 4 million people in America with security clearances. And that combination of overclassification and then too many people having clearances. Um, has led us to this problem. The first bill, the Classification Reform Act, is meant to raise the bar on what information can be classified in the first place. Agencies would need to explicitly determine that the risk to national security outweighs the public's right to know about government activities before they classify information. It would also make the Director of National Intelligence the government's executive agent for both classification and declassification. Backers argue that right now there's no single authority in charge of the overall system, leaving agencies to set their own rules and often classify money mundane documents by default. And to reduce the chances of that happening, the bill also creates what its sponsors call a tax on agencies who classify too much. Each agency would pay into a working capital fund to pay for programs to declassify existing documents, but the agencies who classify the most new records each year would also pay the most. Wyden says one goal of the new fund is to modernize the technologies agencies use for declassification. Even after these records no longer meet the requirements for classification, they just keep piling up and piling up and never see the light of day. Sometimes the agencies can't find the records. Sometimes they are hampered by the fact that the systems don't talk to each other. The result is, in 2023, documents actually have to be printed out and walked around town, walked around town to get everybody's <coughs> sign-off before they're declassified. So we're not even in the right century with respect to technology on these kind of crucial issues. The four of us believe this is a fixable problem. You gotta invest obviously in technological modernization and having somebody in this whole labyrinth of agencies has to make sure these changes uh, get made across the federal government. There's a technology modernization aspect to the second bill, too. 
The Sensible Classification Act would order agencies to converge on a single federated and integrated IT solution to handle classification and declassification decisions. Agencies would also have to furnish studies on how many of their positions require security clearances and justify those numbers. Cornyn says the idea is to reduce the amount of information the government produces with classified markings and reserved secret and top-secret labels for information that really does need to be protected. Theoretically, if that's the case, fewer people will actually need clearances that give them access to genuine secrets that they have no need to know. Our democracy, our ability to govern ourselves, depends on the public getting access to information about what our government is doing and what government officials are doing. And unfortunately, the all-too-human instinct uh, to classify information, which could potentially be embarrassing or uh, jeopardizing to one's uh, advancement in their career, is just, like I said, a natural human instinct. And, and four million people potentially have a right to get access to something. To me, it seems like it's hardly a secret. I think it's really important that we uh, look at our process and make sure that only those truly necessary bits of information are kept in a classified setting and that otherwise that the public's right to know is supported and that the political accountability that our democracy depends on is uh, sort of returned to the process. The legislation would also add funding to the existing Public Interest Declassification Board. That board, in turn, would be an official advisor to the Director of National Intelligence as he or she takes on the role of setting government-wide classification and declassification policies. The reforms the new bills seek have been under discussion by members of the Intelligence Committee for years, but Moran says the senators think the legislation they've come up with stands a genuine chance of passage. In today's environment, it is too great of a risk to have a circumstance in which so much information is classified that we fail to do the job of protecting the information that should be classified. And we've seen it too many times, and we've seen it most recently within the last month. And in this current circumstance, I don't think the four of us are here in any way that we are suggesting we have a messaging bill and that our goal was to get press from you this morning so we could show our constituents that we're doing something. This is a piece of legislation that can become law and is desperately needed. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted 
the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. 
but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, 
not just reading about it, but actually traveling. It, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.